All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, pleasure to have you with us. We uh, have the privilege of kind of getting involved with the Christmas season and all the special things that we have planned this month as we uh, celebrate the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ. So last night we, had, we did our movie night. We had a really, really wonderful turnout. This was a, a great blessing. So what I would encourage you to do is be praying for those that came, uh, that had a, an opportunity to hear the good news of Christ, and uh, just pray that God will continue to work in their lives. That's the reason we did that event. And uh, it was really, uh, really very encouraging. So a couple things that are coming up this month that we want to make you aware of. Uh, we have our children's choir singing on Christmas Eve morning. So that's December 24th. Our Christmas Eve service, for those that have been asking, is at 5 o'clock uh, here at the church building. And then next Sunday morning is the Sunday that we're having our choir sing. So we're doing a joint event with the Walter Hovinghome. They're one of our ministry partners, and we're going to be uh, sharing in a choir with them. I think we'll have about 30-plus people in the choir jointly, so I think it'll be a very powerful morning and very beautiful season of praise and worship of the Lord Himself. So uh, just want to encourage you to uh, join us for that. So Luke chapter 2 is the text in which the angel comes and makes a pronouncement to the shepherds. And the pronouncement that we celebrate in this season is, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of Bethlehem a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So in this season, the focus of our attention is to get our eyes on Jesus. So today we'll begin singing some of the Christmas songs that really celebrate uh, the beautiful truth of the incarnation that God uh, came near in human flesh. God became a baby so that he could grow up in the person of Jesus Christ and one day bear the consequence of our sin on Calvary's cross. So this is the cause of our celebration. I want to ask you to stand with me as we join together in prayer, and then we'll move into our season of worship and song. So Father, the angel said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men with whom you are pleased to dwell. Lord, we are, are humbled as we think uh, that God came near in a baby, that God took on human form, that God became a man, that he became a servant to us through his death on the cross. Uh, Lord, allow us to grasp the full uh, impact of that truth in this season and cause that truth to change us and to make us worshipers who give you thanks. So this morning, Lord, we have gathered to sing your praises, to hear your word, and to be an encouragement to one another. And we pray that all of that would be accomplished in the preaching of your word, in the singing of songs, in the celebration of the Lord's table. Lord, fill everything we do with your presence this morning. And Lord, I pray that if there is a friend present this morning who has not yet come to personal faith and trust in Christ, Lord, I pray today might be the day that you open their eyes. And that they would cry out to you and say, God, I am a sinner. You are a great Savior. Change my life. We ask for that blessing. And now glorify yourself as we sing your praises. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's worship him together.
Father, we thank you for the wonder of the incarnation. Lord, help us never to get over it. May it overwhelm us afresh with the wonder that God became a man. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. 
Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you, Spirit, for your work in us. Pray, Lord, that you'll do a work in our hearts now, even as we look into your word. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Children can be dismissed for junior church at this time. So uh, if you want to slip out for that, that'd be great. So I I don't think I have to um, convince you that the world around us is is a very bad place. There's a lot of evil and temptations and challenges and trials, and the Bible will speak much about that. The problem is the evil is not only around us, it's in us. I was thinking um, of a family I know that my wife and I have had the opportunity to walk with over the last several decades. And about 20 years ago, um, they suffered through some terrible family issues. There was... uh, inappropriate sexual conduct between siblings, which resulted in government involvement and foster care for a period of time and all the stuff that gets connected to all that. And as I've seen that story and other stories, maybe not to the same extreme, the comic strip uh, Pogo, We have found the enemy, and the enemy is us. There's just an awful lot of truth to that. And you think, well, if I could just take them out of their environment and put them in this special place where they don't have a contact with the world around them, then everything would be okay, right? Not exactly. And when we come to the story we're going to be looking at today, In Genesis chapter 9, if you want to turn over there, Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29, it's it's very much this same kind of thing where there's this potential euphoria when you begin the story, like, finally, we get to start everything new. And you know what it made me think of? Um, Remember, Huxley wrote the book back in the 1930s, Brave New World? Okay, do you know where he got the term Brave New World from? It comes from Shakespeare. And in the, and, and in the play, The Tempest, you have this, uh, I, I had to suffer through all the Shakespearean plays when I went to college because they showed them and we had to go to them. So I, I, I have a much deeper appreciation now than I did as a college student, I'm just telling you. But The Tempest was one of the ones we, had, we, we went and watched. And in it... Um, and if you get over the language thing, it's not so bad. You know, all that, you know, like, anyway. But in the, in the Tempest, what you have is you have this um, Duke of Milan, and his brother is against him, so he puts him in a boat hoping he's going to die with this three-year-old girl, and somehow they find their way onto some island, and he gets magical powers. And it's, it's, it's really, really quite fascinating. Um, and... And 12 years later, they're living on this island, doing very well. His brother comes by in a boat. He gets shipwrecked, him and some guys with him. And they end up on that island. And when the daughter first meets them, because she's never seen a human being. She was three when she was shipwrecked with her father. She says this. Oh, wonder, 
How many goodly creatures are there here? How many beauteous mankind, how beauteous mankind is? That's what he says. I'm just reading what he says, okay? How beauteous mankind is. Listen to this. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. She didn't have a clue, did she? And the father replies, I love this reply. Tis new to thee. And what he's saying is, it's not a brave new world. It's the same old world. And we're going to find that in the story of Noah as we read it today. A godly man, a righteous man, a man that walked with God. Did marvelous things. God brought him through the flood. Super stuff. But it's not quite a brave new world either, is it? A couple things to watch as we work through this passage, because I know there are some major challenges in this text. Okay, I don't know. I feel like I keep getting the tough passages in Genesis. <laughs> yeah, whatever, you know. So, but I'm thinking, like, how'd that happen? Like, so you have this whole sin of Ham with his father Noah, and then you, and, and the one, and, and, and you're going to yourself, like, what is that exactly? And again, <sighs> Bible scholars are all over the page on that one. And then, because we just don't get enough details. We, we just get this snippet. You know, we're trying to figure it out. Um, and then, then, you have, then you have this curse on Canaan. So think about it this. So here you have Noah, right? And he's got three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham's the guy that creates the problem. And Canaan, the youngest son of Ham, gets cursed. And you're going like, that ain't fair. Like, well, like, like, come on. I mean, you read the story, and then on top of it all, you go, well, Noah's the guy that got drunk. Shouldn't he take some blame? Wow. This is not an easy passage. But you're going to find the truth in it is powerful, even if some of the details are still controversial. So we want to work through the story and, and I want you to know, although it starts well, it, does, it goes south rather quickly. We'll kind of work through some of these challenges, these interpretive challenges. And there's one other thing I want you to think about as we're working through this story. We say this so often with the Bible. In the Old Testament, for instance, the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. Does that make sense? So one of the things we always want to do is we want to step back into the ancient world and say, so why was Moses saying this to Israelites? Because he wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. Why is Moses saying this to the Israelites before they go into the land of Canaan? Okay, and, and all of a sudden, we want to try, try to think like Israelites as we're talking about this passage. But once we've talked about that, we still gotta talk about us. All right, we're way removed from that. But the Bible, as Paul tells us often, although it wasn't written to us, it was written for us. He'll say it then, 1 Corinthians, Romans 15, say it again and again. So we're coming to us. But I want you to try to slip back, if you can, into sandals of the Israelites way, way, way back, okay? As they're getting ready to come into the land some um, 1,500 years before, before Christ even comes, all right? Let's see, see what we can find out here. 
And I think that's enough. So let's jump into the passage and to kind of guide our path, guide our way here. I put a little chart up there. Just, it's, and it's just kind of highlighting ups and downs through this story and uh, some of the key expressions along the way so you don't get lost. It starts out with background in verses uh, 18 and 19. Uh, listen to what he says. And, and, and again, some, sometimes when you read background stuff, you, you read and you go like, oh, whatever. It's often some things that are said there that are pretty important. So just, just watch for that. So I'm, reading, I'm going to be reading from the uh, ESV for, uh, for this today. So if, you have, if you're reading something else, that's fine, but I'll be reading through the ESV. The text says this, the, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, that's helpful, right? Noah, three boys, got it, all right. And then he kind of throws something into the text. And you're going like, like, what's that all about? And, and, and he says, oh, by the way, just so you know, Ham was the father of Canaan. You go like, okay, like, huh, Canaan, you're, you're, you're a Jew. Canaan, Canaan, you're just kind of like, huh, okay, all right, right. So, so kind of helpful to hear some of those things. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And we're going to find out more about that in chapter 10 and chapter 11. He's just letting you know from these three, everybody goes, but I just want to throw something in. It's a little bit of a teaser. Ham was the father of Canaan. Ding, 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 ding. You see? So just background. That's all he's doing, setting it up. And with any good story, you have to have an inciting incident, don't you? Something has to happen. And that's what we come to here uh, in verses 20 and 21. Noah began to be a man of the soil, or sometimes translated a man of the ground. And he planted a vineyard. And I'm going to stop there. And, and, and there's a reason why I say things are somewhat hopeful just in that verse. Do you remember there was a curse in Genesis chapter 3 put on the serpent, right? And, 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 and the ground was, was going to be very, very difficult for people to work with, right? In chapter 5, Lamech, who is the father of Noah, gives a prophecy, an oracle, and when Noah is born, he says, this one, this one will, will restore to us the curse from the ground. And I think part of what Lamech is thinking is Genesis 3 reversed in my son Noah. Right? I mean, that, that's, that's really hopeful. What we find out when you read about the flood, because the flood is also called a curse on the ground in chapter 8, verse 21. So Noah does give some relief from the flood, but he doesn't give relief from Genesis chapter 3. Do you see? So Lamech, in some sense, was speaking more than he knew. So when it starts out by saying, Noah was a man of the soil. Literally, you could translate that. Noah was a man of the ground. 
going back to all those things, and you're reading going like, finally, a man of the ground. Well, Adam was of the ground, because the name, the, the, the term we use for earth or ground sometimes is the word ha-adam. Adam, Adam, ha-adam. And so ground is, is very much connected to Adam. So you're reading this, you go, here's a man of the ground, but finally, maybe the ground's going to go good, and we're going to have a reversal of all this stuff. And he even goes on to plant a vineyard, and you go like, yeah, advancement. You know, we can have some grape juice and wine now. So about that time, you're going like, okay. And then it goes south. What verse 21 says. He drank of the wine, and he became drunk. Was it wrong to drink? No, what was wrong was to get drunk. Okay, so he drank of the wine, and he became drunk. And lay uncovered in his tent. Literally, it says he, he exposed his nakedness in the tent. Okay. And you're going like, well, that's probably not the best thing. And, 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 and when you read um, about nakedness in Genesis and in the Pentateuch, one of the things you find that's very significant to God is that should only be bound up in the husband-wife relationship. That, that exposure, that, that whole thing, it's, just, it's all kind of like right there. Okay, that's, that's, that's how it goes. And, and so when he goes into his tent and maybe he's hot from being sweaty, from being drunk, I don't know. But he displays himself in a way that should only display, be displayed with the most intimate partner, his wife. So, I mean, that, that, that's just kind of the inciting incident. And you're going like, this doesn't feel real good. It gets worse. Notice what happens in verse 22, and I'm going to try to handle this thing as um, tactfully as I can, um, but still help you feel the weight of what's going on. It's, it's a very interesting passage. So, gets tense. Look what verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan. Do you see how he's doing this again, the writer, Moses? I mean, he doesn't want you to miss this. Father of Canaan. Think Canaanites or Israelites, right? Think Canaan. I'm just saying, just saying the father of Canaan. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And you're going like, uh, okay, so like, what, what's, what's going on here? Um, a couple things I want to mention, well, about the sin, okay? It's been understood in a variety of ways. Um, the, some have argued that it's just uh, an inappropriate sexual voyeurism, okay? You read some of the rabbinic writings and of others, and some argued that, uh, Jewish writers in the intertestamental period and so forth, some argued that actually when Ham went in there, it wasn't just what he saw, it's what he did, because when you get to verse of 24, and it says he knew what his younger son had done to him. The question is, what does done mean there? Does it just mean see? Does it mean something more than that? Nah, you know, people go back and forth, nah, whatever. And so, 
people have talked about voyeurism. They've talked about some homosexual act. They've talked about castration. They, that Ham would have done that to his father. I'm just, I'm just telling. And you know why? Because when you read far, farther on, it will talk about the fact you, you have no evidence that, that, that um, Noah had any more than three sons. Whereas if you read the genealogies before this in chapter 5 and after this in chapter 11, it always says, and -and so-and-so lived so many years and had sons and daughters. This text at the end merely says in verse 29, all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. And so people said, well, something's going on there. And so they come up with that one. I'm not buying it. I'm just telling you. And the last one is... And there's been a lot of uh, more recent scholars that have gone this direction, to be honest with you, who have actually argued that in going in, when he says seeing the nakedness of, he, it's code euphemism for the whole actual act of. And what it's saying is he actually slept with his mother as an in-your-face to his father. Um, and I actually sat with that one for a week to try to say, I'm going to really kind of see it this way and see how it works and there's too many problems with it in my opinion but we don't know exactly all what happened the reason I don't think it went to those extremes is because of what the brothers did was the opposite of what Ham did and what the brothers did was they just went in and appropriately covered him up so I, I, I don't think it's going like way out here. It, it doesn't make as much sense to me. And there's other problems with that. You have, you'd have to have Lot, I mean, you'd have to have Noah giving the curse on Canaan before Canaan was even born. So I, I, it, it, it it's doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. I sat with it for a while and it just didn't work for me. Um, so what do I think is going on here? It is interesting this whole idea of, of, of seeing and exposing nakedness and all that kind of stuff, uh, if you read the NIV, it, it, it changes the language. It makes it more, you know, but, but that's what it says. There's a major section in Leviticus 18 on it, and there's also another major section of it in the book of Ezekiel. It's really interesting. This language is picked up. In Leviticus 18... He's talking about all the sins of the Canaanites. And he lists all kinds of stuff where the the family boundary is violated. Because family is the most intimate of of all units, isn't it? And yet, within the family, there must be sexual boundaries at all times. And so this passage is recognizing that. Leviticus 18 is recognizing that also, where you you have this language. And, and, And often, seeing is closely attached, like in Leviticus 20, verse 17, it's specifically connected to actually seeing as a precursor to actually engaging in um, sexual activity. Okay, So, so this stuff gets real close. I think at the end of the day, it was a form of voyeurism. Um, I think it was probably voyeurism with some sexual intent and thoughts. Was there any inappropriate touching? I don't know. Perhaps, maybe. We don't know. But it wasn't good. It was complete disrespect of his father. And it was complete violation of sexual boundaries. For sure. How far it went, 
Perhaps the text is purposely sparing us some of the sordid details. So, that's what happens. Let me tell you what's not happening. It's not like Sam, uh, Ham, Sam, not Ham, okay, Sam, forget it. So, Ham walks by and he happens to just peek into the tent because he wanted to ask his dad how many pegs to put down for a tent or something and said, oh man, whoa, you know, uh, you know I mean, that, that's not what's going on. There is intent there and it's inappropriate and it's a violation of boundaries that God has established for the family. And it's practices that the Canaanites readily engage in in Leviticus 18. Ham, the father of Canaan. You're, you're a Jew, you're an Israelite, you're making some of these kinds of connections, okay? So I think that's the sin that, that he's actually talking about, um, something like that. He doesn't only see, in a very inappropriate, voyeuristic kind of way, um, it says he goes out and tells his brothers. And I don't think when he went out and told his brothers, he's, he's saying like, oh, I can't believe dad. Like, you know, we got to do something. I think he's going out in a, in a boastful, kind of arrogant, mocking way. He's mocking his dad. Can you believe the old man? <laughs> you ought to see him in there. I was in there. Whatever, whatever, you know, stuff like that. And so you're reading this story, and you're going like, man, this is not going well. This family has got some major problems, him in particular. And then you read the next section, and I love this. Um, but notice, notice what it says then positively about uh, Shem and Japheth here in verses, um, verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth, the other two brothers of Ham, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Now what's interesting, in Hebrew stories, it will sometimes repeat something just so you don't miss the point. And that's exactly what happens here. So he just made the statement, that's kind of all you need. But nah, 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 he's going to revisit it because he wants you to get this point, the next sentence. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. So when they go in, you know, they don't, you know, they're just kind of feeling their way in, right? And they drop the garment on and they walk out. They were in a completely awkward situation, weren't they? And they were asking themselves, how can we protect boundaries? How can we honor our father all at the same time? These were good sons. And they went in and they did the work. And you go like, okay, well, okay, that seems better now. The only problem is, the drunk, the guy who's stone drunk and stark naked um, is going to wake up. And then what happens? Look at the next passage. Verse 24. Then Noah awoke from his wine 
and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. I, um, I used to kind of figure that he got that info from, um, matter of fact, I think the NIV translates it, he found out as if somebody had to inform him. So he, he was out saying, hey, Shem, uh, how's things going? Oh, dad, pff, we had a major issue. I don't, I don't think it's the best way to read the text. It's, it's literally to know. I think in his drunkenness, he knew that his son was present and it was at least mocking him. He knew something that was going on with his son while his son was in there. I know that doesn't always happen when you're drunk. Remember, Lot gets drunk, and there's an incestuous relationship with his two daughters, and he never remembers any of it. So I, I, I get that. But I think in this case, in this guy's drunkenness, there's some awareness here. This is not an easy passage, folks. I'm just, I'm just saying. But in his drunkenness, he's aware that something went on. And now, in verse 25... He's ready to speak. And one of, the, one of the challenges is when you read what we often call these oracles, these, they, they, are, are, they, are they requests to God? Are they prophecies that God's going to actually com- accomplish or something quasi in between? It, so he's going to speak a curse, and in speaking the curse, He's actually going to be talking not primarily even about individuals, but entire groups of individuals' descendants from those individuals. So look at what he says. He, this is somewhat of a request. It's also an oracle. Because have you know, if, you re, if you continue reading in Genesis, when significant individuals kind of give these oracles, they're really, really important. Like in Genesis 49, you will have, um, Israel will be giving statements about all of his sons. And he's not so much talking about the son as the descendants as a group coming out of that son. Okay? So very, very common. And that, that, that's kind of what you find happening here. All right. So, verse 25. Noah wakes up. He knows what Ham has done. And now he's going to speak. You know, this is the only time that Noah speaks in the entire Bible. This is it. Verse 25 down through verse 27. And he's going to speak both cursing and blessing. So let's talk this one through too. This is the other great challenge. What went on in the tent and why cursing your grandkid for what your son did, right? You see, you see how challenging that is. So he said, verse 25, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. I want to talk through this, but I want to dispel one thing very quickly. Um, and I mean, maybe I'll just pop over here for one second. Um, I don't know if, can you kind of see that map of... Uh, You've got Africa there going up into Palestine there, which is green, and you've got the yellow, and you've got the red. Well, the red is, is, is as you're going to find in chapter 10, is the descendants of Japheth. The yellow is, is Shem, or Sem, or what we call the Semites. You think about the anti-Semitic language, right? You see how this all connects, right, to Shem, right? So you have the 
you have Shem and the Shemites or the Semites, and then you have uh, the Hamites in the green. What's very, very important, and this is, this is terrible, false teaching. I don't hear it today, which is good. But, I, but it, it, it's, it is a shame on the Christian church for a period of time. There were some Bible scholars, not scholars, probably more Bible teachers, uh, in the 1800s that actually used this text to justify the slavery of Africans. Cursed is, cursed is Canaan. And all I want to point out is, it doesn't say cursed is the Hamites. It says cursed is the Canaanites. And guess where the Canaanites were? In Canaan. Complete misreading of the text. This is just an aside. And, and to me, it's a, it's a terrible blight on the church that there was a period of time in which some of that stuff was said. Okay, so... Anyway, just kind of put that off to the side. So here he is giving this oracle, and he starts out by saying, curse be Canaan. And we're good Americans. And we don't like that. You can't curse somebody else for what he did. That's not right. It's not fair. Right, right. Am I right on that? Does, does that trouble you? That's not fair. You know, my kids have said that from the youngest. Like, Dad, that's not fair. You know? And I read this and I say to God, that's not fair. So like, I, I kind of get that. So what's going on? Do you remember, um, there's a passage in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5, and maybe, maybe I'll just read it to you um, in case you don't remember it. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5 says this. God is talking about people who dishonor him. And he says, I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So there it kind of sounds like the group gets nailed for what an ancestor did, doesn't it? Well, over in Deuteronomy 24, and again picked up explicitly in Ezekiel, is this statement that says, the son will not be to blame for the sin of the father. And the father will not be blamed for the sin of the son. And you go like, well, like, how do you put those two together? Because there seems to be kind of some generational um, consequences or propensity or, or something going on. But there's also individual responsibility. And the way you put those things together is this. To the extent that the offspring reflect the vice or virtue of the forebears, they will face the same punishment that the forebears experienced. That's what Exodus is telling us. So if somebody says, so we're all Canaanites hopelessly condemned. Well, what do you do with Rahab? No, no, if you repent, you get to actually come into the people of God. And in her case, you get to be part of the, 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 the line directly down to David, for goodness sakes. So we don't want to ever remove personal responsibility, but we recognize there's generational propensities. 
and tendencies and consequences often. And you got to keep them in balance. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. Think about it this way. There's a reason he identifies Ham, the father of Canaan. Ham, the father of Canaan. And then, and then Ham, who is the youngest son. You know who the youngest son is of Ham? When you read chapter 10? It's Canaan. You know what God's doing? When Noah gives his curse, he's saying this to Ham. Ham, you have dishonored your father in areas that you have no right to enter. The descendants, uh, uh, you as my youngest son have done this to me. Your youngest son's descendants will therefore dishonor you. So it's just a tit for tat in many ways. Noah says, you as the youngest have done this to your father. So the descendants of Canaan will do this in dishonor to you. So it all gets connected. And if you're an Israelite, and you're hearing, cursed is the Canaanites, servant of servants shall they be to all of their brothers, including the Egyptians and all the other Hamites and everything like that. Um, you're going like, yeah, because we're getting ready to go into that land with, with all the ites, the, you know, the Ammonites and the Perizzites and the whatever ites you want to put in there. They're all there. So all those ites, and the nation is going like, well, we're from Shem, and they're from Canaan. Wow. God's preparing the way for us. You see how you would be thinking? Now, we as Americans think a little bit differently about it. We're like, you can't do that, but that guy's responsible for the blah, blah, blah. It's, it all is connected. It's all connected in the way the scripture brings all that together. Was there anything else I wanted to say on that? Uh, said that, said that, said that. I think I probably said enough on that. Um, yeah, Deuteronomy 24, 16 was the other verse though, that, that shows clear personal responsibility. All right. So cursed is this group. It goes on to say this. Uh, yeah. Blessing comes then in verses 26 and 27. Um, oh, you know what? Maybe I will do this. I wasn't sure if I was going to do it, but I'm thinking, yeah, let me do it, whatever. I've taken you this far. We might as well run, run the gamut. Um, for just a moment, will you come in your Bibles over to Leviticus 18? Leviticus 18. I want you to see how, as a Jew, that you would be hearing some of these things. Leviticus 18. Um, you're getting ready to go into the land. Canaanites are there. And, and remember, the Canaanites got worse and worse as time went on. Do you remember in Genesis 15 when God says, the sins of the Amorite are not yet full? They're on this downward spiral of wickedness and it's going to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And God in his patience and grace is saying, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, but there's going to come a time when, when literally the land's going to want to vomit those people out because it's unclean. And God needs sacred space. And, and, and so, but, but it's not like God is just like reacting. He's patient for hundreds of years. 
as the spiral of these Canaanites just goes, if what Ham did is on steroids when you go to the Canaanites. Leviticus 18, listen to what Moses says. Well, the Lord says to Moses, actually. The Lord says to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, um, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you to. So, so there's, this, there's this recognition of, wow, remember what they've done there, okay? Um, and then what you have in verse five, running all the way down to almost the end of the chapter, is you have this language of don't expose, don't violate family boundaries. So you can't sleep with her or him or just establishes all these things. And then he gets to the very end of all this. And then in verse 24, he says this, do not defile yourself in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you have become defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my law. Um, the native born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things either. They can come in if they claim the name of Yahweh. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out too, just as it vomited them out. Sexual boundaries in the home, in the family, are not some afterthought for God. They're critical. They're very, very important. So he says in Leviticus 18, and again in Leviticus 20, beware, and by the time you get to Israel, ready to go into Canaan, the Canaanites are engaging in all this stuff off the charts, beyond anything probably that Ham would even comprehend. Well, maybe not, but at least practice. And that's where we are. And Noah proclaims this curse. Fortunately, he also gives a blessing. And so let me, uh, let me kind of pick up where I left off there. So he said, and then in verse 26, and I want you to notice in verse 26, who does he bless? Does he bless Shem? Does he bless Japheth? Directly or indirectly? Indirectly. Who does he actually bless? God. Look at what he says. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. And that's going to be great encouragement for the Israelites going in there, knowing that God will give them victory. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant too. The hope in this text is not humans. There is no brave new world without God. There is not. There is only 
the same old thing again. But this text says, yes, in a world that's marked by evil and offspring taking sins of their fathers to the hilt, it's all true. God is a blessing God. And he's a blessing God, first of all, because we bless him, we praise him that he has chosen to be in relationship with people. And he's going to do that through the line of Shem, through the Semites. And Shem is going to run us down to Abraham, and Abraham is going to run us down to David, and David is going to run us down to who? Christ. You see how all this stuff just connects? Uh, it just, it, it all ends up with Jesus all the time, right? As it's where we find ourselves. So blessed be God. Not only blessed be God because he has chosen to be in relationship with, with, with people who are imperfect with all their problems. Look at the nation of Israel, for goodness sakes. Look at the patriarchs. Look at Lot and his sin and Reuben sleeping with his father's concubine and you go like, man alive, I don't even know how to turn this into a movie. If we had a movie night on all that stuff, you know, you won't bring your kids. It, it's, it's kind of graphic stuff. I mean, it's, 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 it's strong stuff. So blessed be God for what he's doing with the people. And blessed, blessed be God because He's never ending with that people. He's reaching out to others and bringing them in too. And so Abraham would be the one through whom the nations would be blessed, right? It starts here, but it was never meant to stay there. It was always meant to expand out because that's what God does. So a text that on the one hand, you read it and feels sordid and Oh, I just want to, you go like, oh, there is some hope. There's only hope because God intervenes. That's the way it always works, doesn't it? So what do I think the point here of this passage is? I think I'd say it like this. Oh, I'm sorry. Before I give you that, I should read the end of the text then. Um, verse 28 and 29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. There's, there's no evidence that he had any more kids. You say, well, maybe he didn't. They didn't put it in. That's, that's possible. It just strikes me as strange that it is included earlier and it is included later. So I, I find that to be interesting. Um, whatever that all means. So what's the point of this passage? I think it's this. While the world is hopelessly marked by familial disrespect sexual violation at whatever level and destructive consequences from such practices. Hope for humanity is found in a submissive and dependent relationship with the God who rules through the seed of Shem. Well, about that. You should have had this while we're talking about the flood, but okay, we're going to go. So this tells me a couple things, and then I'll be done. Just, just, just by way of summary. I, I want to just kind of then recap Noah. Uh, and then I want to talk about Israel. And then I want to talk about us. Okay? There's a lot of interesting parallels between Noah and Adam. They're both men of the ground. 
They, they, they both, the whole issue of nakedness comes up in both accounts. The idea of shame, the idea of seeing things you ought not be seeing or, 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 or perhaps eating or tasting things, drinking things you ought not be. It's, it's this, there's just some the whole series of interesting parallels between Noah and Adam. And all I can tell you, if Noah is the second Adam, we are completely hopeless because he's a chip off the old block. And in both accounts in Genesis 3 and again in this passage, the only reason we can end this passage saying, is because of God who intervenes and is to be blessed because he chooses to intervene. And he chooses to include in ways that, that rejoice our heart. So interesting parallels between Noah and Adam. For Israel, I want you to think about this. When they went into the land, in the conquest in the time of the kings, God gave them victory over the Canaanites, didn't he? Does he expand all of Japheth's tents so that they come in and they enjoy everything with the stuff? Did that ever happen? No, this story is not complete with Israel. The, the part with the Canaanites? Okay, I'm getting that. Although they didn't do so well with that all the time. But, but the point is, this part of the story that says, oh, and all nations of the earth will be blessed as they get involved with Israel and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't happen. And, and you end your Old Testament in, in I, the end of Isaiah, where Isaiah is talking about a day when these other groups will come in and will be involved and all, all that kind of wonderful stuff. But it doesn't happen in the Old Testament. It doesn't happen. When does do the Jeff, 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 Jephthahites, however you say it, when do they get embraced? And not only them, how about Canaanites? Are, are they hopelessly done? Not if they repent. You have Rahab. You have Uriah, one of David's mighty men. He was a what? Hittite. Eh, eh, eh. That's one of those guys. And he's included. It is in Jesus Christ. So that when you start looking at the mission of the church, so this is just a map, again, of the advancement, those arrows are the advancement of what Paul does in his missionary outreach. If you want to start seeing these Gentiles included in what God is doing, it is because the ultimate Israelite, Jesus Christ, has come. The ultimate Semite, Jesus Christ, has come. And if you know him, you are embraced into the blessings of God. So that happens through Christ. It's not going to happen through the nation. Has anybody been to the Bible Museum um, down in Washington, D.C.? Have you ever seen that? You ought to go. It, it is really worth seeing. It is really, really good. There's one part of it that completely makes me go, it just really annoys me. Um, and which doesn't make sense because the guy who put $500 million into that thing was, was a Christian who owns Hobby Lobby. And I'm thinking like, hey, bud, you, ought to be, you should have been able to speak into this one. But they, they do a variety of things, really fascinating, great stuff. But they, they have like, they take you on a journey through the Old Testament. 
And it's, you sit there and they show you these pictures and you move from room to room. It's, I mean, it's brilliantly done from an artistic perspective. Excellent stuff. And I'm waiting for the end. And I'm waiting at the end there. And you know how it ends? It, this must have been done by a group of Jews that don't believe that Christ is Messiah. Because they said, yeah, we went into exile, but one day we believe that we will come back in the land and we will be everything we're supposed to be. And there was nothing about Jesus. It's impossible without Jesus. It can't be. And I know Romans 11 talks about the nation turning back to him at the end. And that'll be terrific. Praise the Lord. But it's not now. That can only happen in Jesus Christ. That's the way it works. So I watched that. I thought to myself, like, I should write a letter. I did. Write a letter to the guy saying, hey, bud, you got to change that ending. I mean, at least say something like, some of us are looking for a Messiah. At least something. Anyway, I, I don't know if they'll do it, but, but that, that, that completely bothered me. Anyway, so this oracle can never be fulfilled apart from Christ. Do you see that? For he is the ultimate Semite. He is that to which everything else is pointing. To simplify it, I might say this. While sin and its divine consequences are inevitable, and they are, for that is who God is, divine grace is available for all in Christ. In Matthew 15, remember the Syrophoenician woman? Well, Matthew actually identifies her as a Canaanite woman. And I think Matthew 15 is a reversal of this passage. When this woman comes to recognize the priority of Christ and the fact that he's working through the Jewish nation, she says, but even puppy dogs can eat from the crumbs of the table. And Jesus says, this for her and for the centurion, both non-Jews, he's amazed by their faith. And he commends it. And another person you thought would be cursed is embraced in the person of Jesus Christ. So hope for all is bound up in him. The family I was talking to you about at the beginning, I was at a gathering a couple weeks ago and their family was there. Grown kids now, 20 years out. And we ended our time together going around, because around Thanksgiving, we ended our time going around and just sharing things we're thankful for to God for. And I watched child after child proclaimed the glories and the grace and the hope of transformation in Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's why we're in this business. We don't deny how bad things are. Take your best guy, Noah. He's going to have problems with some of his kids. We don't deny any of that. What we relish in God be blessed and praised because the ultimate Semite has come that you and I might be reconciled to God and begin to live a life 
that we could never have lived in a brave new world. Father, help us, help us to see the truth. Yeah, the world's hard and it's problematic and yeah, that's, that's, that's all true. But so are we. Our hearts, Lord, are the hearts of rebels apart from your enabling grace. You have been so kind to us in sending Jesus. You've been so kind to us in convicting our hearts through your spirit. You've been so kind to us in saving us, giving us the hope of eternal life, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done on the cross of Calvary for us. We can be forgiven. And as believers, may we go back to that cross again and again and again and think about the fact that God has loved us by giving his son. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, it's appropriate for us to come to the communion service <laughs> after a passage like that. Because our hope is in Christ. And so, if you're visiting with us, there's nothing magical in this drink or in, in, the, in the wafers. In the, you know, you don't drink anything happens to you or nothing like that. No. Now, th this, is a, this is a symbol. This, is a, a, this becomes this sign for you and I to sit and reflect and wonder afresh about the fact that a hopeless world can find hope in the ultimate semi-Jesus Christ who has come for us. So as you drink, as you eat, praise him. Praise him for including you in the people of God because you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior. And if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you ought not engage in this, because this is for people who know Christ. But if you do, with all your heart, remember afresh what he's done for us. I'm gonna ask the men to come and distribute them.
Could you please rise with us and sing praises to the Lord?
On the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took a cup and he took bread. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way as he took the cup after supper, saying this, is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Psalm 103, it says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and tender mercies, who satisfies you with good so that your youth may be renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. Amen. Tim, would you come? Hey, we have a couple quick announcements before we let you guys go. Uh, one, if you had wanted to participate in that uh, Christmas collection we're taking for the homesteads for the pastors in Togo, uh, the mission work there, uh, we still have this week and next week uh, to contribute to that. And then we'll make the big announcement Christmas Eve on uh, how much land we're able to, to purchase for them. So uh, there's information on the table out front if you weren't here when we made the announcement or just see me after the service and I'll, I'll fill you in on all the details. And then the other thing is, this is exciting, is next week after the service we're going to have a meeting, uh, I'm guessing in the Sunday school room way over on the far left here, um, about uh, some potential opportunities for children's ministries in the church, possibly even like a midweek evening kind of thing. Uh, so if you're a parent with young children and you would like to attend that meeting, um, the purpose of this meeting is to get feedback, input, what your needs are, how we can meet those needs, that type of thing. And uh, also to gain from your wisdom to help us design it the way uh, that would best fit the needs of your kids. Uh, and if you're also, if you're, you don't have kids, but if you might be interested in working in a ministry like that and you'd like to attend the meeting, you're more than welcome also. We, we covet your presence there. So uh, with that said, let me close in prayer and we'll dismiss. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, uh, as we leave this morning and we head out into uh, the world that Doug described as challenging at times, um, 
We pray that you would guide us and that you would mark our steps, that you would speak to us throughout the week, Lord God. Lord, our, our, our prayers are much like Solomon's. We ask for wisdom, Lord, uh, to deal with uh, a difficult people. Um, we are the spiritual leaders that you have sent into our community, and we pray that you would empower us. But also like Solomon, we pray that you would give us the spiritual heart to embrace the things that you speak to us and to carry them forth in obedience, Lord God. Uh, give us each an obedient heart this week to, hit, to hear you and to do as you would have us do. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.